on me nicely. Sun tells me good things are coming, and I ain't gonna not believe. I am looking for freedom, looking for freedom, and I find it on the everything I have. Oh, I am looking for Welcome to Second Chances. Tonight, we will be discussing advocacy for early release. Please welcome our guest, Alicia Rico Flores, who is a former prosecutor, defense attorney, and former judge. She has a passion for criminal justice reform and has worked to raise awareness about the troubling state of our criminal justice system through education and advocacy. And we also have a guest, Ali Munigakis, Founder and Executive Director of South Carolina for Criminal Justice Reform, Criminal Defense and Trial Attorney. Thank you and welcome to our show. Please welcome our co-host for Second Chances, Lulu Cameron. Thank you so much. I appreciate everyone being here. Um, and I have the pleasure of introducing Erica Felder, founder of Hearts for Inmates. Uh, she's been advocating for legislation and policy change for quite some time now. Anyone who knows her knows how deep in the streets and in the legislation box she has been. And we appreciate her being here with us today. And then also um, one of my favorites, um, of course, I love y'all all, but I'm a little near and dear to Tamla Standard. She is the director of South Carolina for Restorative Justice and she has been an advocate and community educator for a very long time. So thank you all for being here with us today. Uh, we got a full house, so we're excited to have everyone here to talk about just the process of things. And so we'll get right into it. Um, we'll go ahead with our first question and then we'll kind of move forward. Um, I'll let you know who I want to answer it. McKinney, you go ahead. Um, so what gives you confidence in second chances for people who are incarcerated? Erica, can you answer that for us? I'm sorry. I, it's, I'm, I heard what she said, but it was very low. And I apologize. Can you repeat that one more time? Just to no make sure. That I it says, uh, the question is, what gives you confidence in second chances for people who are incarcerated? Each day, um, just the mere fact that we have the amount of people who are incarcerated that actively um, make choices of doing the right thing every day. I think that it brings that reassurance that people are greater than what led them to prison. Um, when you see things for, such as um, second chance, expungement, um, things that happen even outside of incarceration, it gives people the hope of getting some of those things expunged, um, having the pardon process of you know being able to successfully be able to get a pardon and we know that a lot of times people are able to get more pardons than necessarily than they are able to get the parole that's necessary for their release um, I think that as we educate people um, it allows them to be able to give a second chance um, when we tell our stories when they hear about what incarceration really is um, we all are on a second chance and to be honest a lot of those men and women never even had a first real chance at life um, when you look at some of their backgrounds and some of the traumas and the things in which they had to endure, they never even were given a first chance. So I think that just being optimistic, educating people on um, what incarceration is um, outside of the crimes that they may or may have not committed. I think that's why it's always uh, good to be optimistic and ensuring that we treat everyone with the same respect. Again, we don't know everybody's story. And it's unfortunate that we're in a society where people are often enticed to take pleas where their stories are not actually heard. Um, so if that sums it up, that's why I would say. 
Yeah, no, I definitely agree. And I think that it's important that we look at the over-sentencing that has taken place in the United States of America that has really impacted, you know, generations of families and people. Sure, we all make mistakes. Um, I think, you know, I've spoken to some of my friends and we discuss how, you know, there are situations in our lives that could have also landed us in position to be in prison. But thankfully, um, you know, we're not there. We're not in those circumstances. And so I think that what happens in society is that people see the crime on the street and they associate it with the people in prisons and they do not have any idea the path of redemption that a person has walked or has taken throughout their process of incarceration. We are, you know, absolutely here advocating for early release, but we're advocating for early release for people who have aged out of the criminal mindset, who have served enough time. I think, you know, we're seeing more and more nowadays where people are really engaging in the criminal justice system because they're recognizing the level of unfairness that is actually taking place in the system. And so, um, you know, I kind of want to piggyback that and just ask Alicia, maybe if you can tell us as a as a former prosecutor and a former judge, you know, what made you feel like people were deserving of second chances? Well, Lulu, having served as a prosecutor and criminal defense attorney as well as a judge, I saw a system before me that often the determination or the outcome was based on whether or not an individual had the means to pay. And if you did not have the economic ability to get the be best outcome, you did find yourself awaiting <coughs> trial while in jail, while incarcerated. And you are often coerced into accepting a plea and ending up trapped in the justice system, either on probation or serving, you know, a, a long prison sentence. And so the current system that we have is not always fair. And this is one of the reasons why I'm a huge advocate of criminal reform, because of many, the, the many problems within the system that are also that that often are, is unfair to people of color um, and individuals who um, do not have the economic or the, the uh, ability to pay to receive the best representation and, and which often translates into the best outcome. Yeah, most definitely. I can totally um, agree with that. And I think that um, it's important that we show everything from a variety of different perspectives because it's going to take for us to change the hearts and minds of the people um, who are empowered to vote for different legislation, who are empowered to actually be a part of the change as far as legislation is concerned in order to give people an opportunity. Does anybody else have something they want to chime in to that? Tammy, are you leaning forward for that? I'm just, uh, I mean, I can always respond to that. I think it's um, so important because, like you said, there's so many instances where people did not have a chance to start with. And so it's just it's a multi-level failure of several systems, you know, in our state and federal government that, you know, all those places failed a lot of these people. Um, and you know, by the grace of God, I think a lot of people say they're what I be. So I think second chances are so important. Yeah, most definitely. Um, Ali or McKinney, did you have something? Yes. Um, so what do you regard as a fair measure for affording those convicted of serious violent crimes and chances for early release? Did you guys, were you guys able to hear? Can you Just a little bit. It's, it's, we've just been having a little technical difficulty, y'all. Um, she's a little low. Did you guys hear everybody? Okay. Anybody want to take it? Oh, Erica. I didn't um, 
she's, uh, what do you regard as a fair measure for affording those convicted of serious violent crimes a chance for early release? McKinney, I can take that one. Um, I feel that there needs to be more of a systematic approach in determining whether or not an individual should be paroled. Right now, I feel that it's very arbitrary and several people, many people are denied parole based on of the offense, which will never change. And so we really need to take a more systematic, less arbitrary approach and genuinely evaluate whether or not the reform has taken place while the individual has been incarcerated. So that could result, that could mean a psychological assessment, that could mean looking at their, their behavior over, over several years, even over a decade, depending on how long they've actually been incarcerated. So I feel that there are several factors that need to be taken into consideration. Are they truly reformed based on their record while they've been incarcerated, based on a psychological assessment? And individuals who are incarcerated should be given an opportunity, more constitutional rights at their parole hearing so that they have the ability to counter evidence against their release. And so I think that basically, what have they done? What has been what has been their record while they've been incarcerated? And because we all know that everybody in prison, um, there are some people who didn't do it. There are some people who did do it. They did do the crime they were convicted of, and they need to be rehabilitated. And over a certain amount of time, they need to be evaluated to determine whether or not they can re-enter society. So I feel that a, a fair measure is an adequate evaluation and an ability to offer evidence concerning that evaluation and, and an ability to uh, put forth a case um, in a hearing that lasts more than about five minutes um, to determine whether or not you should be able to re-enter society. Um, I definitely, I'm sorry, I'll let you go. Just give me one second. I definitely agree with you that there should be some type of systematic reform that employs um, pre-entry, meaning the day that you get incarcerated, you should know the path of redemption you need to take in order to be considered. Because as I listen to a lot of people talk about, well, what does a person's record look like? Well, you don't know what the circumstances are under, under the pretenses in which they're being held. There's a lot of inhumane treatment that goes on inside of these prisons. There's a lack of rehabilitative efforts on a lot of the institutional um, parts. And there are a lot of people on the inside who have sought their own redemption through their own efforts. But will that get documented on, you know, on their their folder, so to say, in order for them to be reviewed as someone who has been a model citizen while incarcerated, that can be something that kind of creates a little tricky area because if you don't have judges on the front end employing requirements and you don't have anyone holding the departments accountable for the expectations of those who are incarcerated, and then you have a person who came from a broken situation to begin with. I don't know how to fix myself if I'm already a mess. You can't get something out of someone that wasn't put into them. And so the requirement for rehabilitative efforts should look a little different, not more so different from, you know, the 90 to 120 days before a person is being released. You know, you hear the, the horror stories of people spending years in lockup never having human touch or being able to see someone and then boom, it's your time to go home. You got to go. I don't know where you're going, but you got to get the heck up out of here. And so the thing is, is that there has to be some checks and balances along the way for everyone involved. And um, go ahead, Ali. I mean, to take over. No, not at all. First of all, thank you, uh, Lulu. 
um, and Tamala for having me on here from South Carolina for criminal justice reform. We love working with you guys and it's such a pleasure to be among such strong um, leaders and women um, in our state when it comes to these issues, which I think is really important. Um, you know, that question, McKinney, is such an important one. You know, what is a fair measure? I think about this all the time, especially in my work as, you know, a former public defender, a defense attorney in the trial level. What is fairness, right? What is um, equity when it comes to the criminal justice system? I'll tell you, it's just so interesting and um, a shame the difference between the rights that individuals have when it comes to constitutional rights at their trial level versus at their potential parole hearing or their potential resentencing hearing. Um, if the standards that are used at parole hearings were used at the trial level, it would be so unconstitutional and so unfair. Um, let's talk about like who decides these, these huge decisions, right? I mean, why do we have punishment? Why do we have prison? Why do we have jail? I mean, the theories behind that and criminology are one, um, because you're supposed to um, protect the community, right? Someone is a huge danger to society. So we need to contain them. What's the other thing? The other thing is to deter other people from committing that same crime. So when a judge is looking at a crime at a trial level and someone's found guilty or pleads guilty and they're up for sentencing, what's the judge looking at? The judge is looking at whether they have remorse for the crime that was committed, um, what their criminal history was, what their acts were, whether they cooperated, what potential consequences could happen after their um, sentence. And then after the judge makes that sentence, they never see that case again for the most part. Um, and I think that's a problem. Um, same with prosecutors. They offer a plea bargain and they offer a plea. It's like, okay, I'll give you 15 years for trafficking or whatever. And they never see that case again unless the legal issues are appealed. If we were to apply that for police officers, for example, if every person that a police officer arrested, they never had to come to court again. They never had to um, provide any evidence to them again. They just arrested and everything else happened. They didn't have to worry about. How many people do you think there would be more people that were arrested, right? Because there's no work required for the police officer. That's what's happening for these judges and prosecutors. They never have to worry about these cases after they're sentenced again. What I would love to see and what I think would be a practical way to um, address a lot of these over-sentencing issues is to make that individual prosecutor, to make that individual judge required to stay on that case after sentencing, required to keep up with that inmate or that resident or that um, that defendant after they're sentenced and make them have to do some work to decide whether or not they have been rehabilitated, right? So at a point it comes to whether the victim has been compensated, right? how the victim feels like what you do, Lulu, with restorative justice, bringing peace to those victims or alleged victims, um, but also looking at that individual person. Were they, quote, punished enough? Did they, um, do they have remorse now at this time? Have they been even more hurt by this overbearing system? And have those individuals readdress it and have a full hearing like we do have a trial? When you have a parole board where it's individuals that are appointed or elected through, they know this person, they knew this person, it's the same people over and over, right? In the trial process, it's not that. It's in um, a jury of your peers is what the constitution affords us. Random people from the community, um, people who are not um, politically or financially motivated by the results. Um, so I think it really is gonna if we're going to continue to do parole, which I also have some concerns about whether these sentences should even be that high to begin with. Um, but if we are going to continue this process, we need to have fairness in who's making these decisions. And the decision makers right now are not fair and they're ill-equipped to make these huge life impacting decisions. Can I? Yes, ma'am. Go right ahead. <laughs> Can you hear me okay? Um, one thing I would say that I noticed um, is that taking away the judge's discretion, um, a lot of people, especially in South Carolina, with the truth in sentencing, it took away that truth and well, that judge's discretion. 
Um, I think that that's a serious issue because um, judges now have to go by guidelines, so to speak, and not necessarily have the ability to do what they did prior, where they had the, the determined and indeterminate laws. Where you're seeing where people, you know, were receiving these work credits, they were able to look at who that person is, so to speak. Now who they were actually were when they were sentenced. So I think that's a critical part as to why we see things the way they are. And there is a systematic, but the system is doing exactly what it was created to do is to incarcerate. Um, and so when you look at when South Carolina prior to the 90s, 95, when we were up under the determined and indeterminate laws, Judges had more of a discretion on, you know, if they want to give some leniency, you know, if they felt that this person did not deserve this amount of time. I think taking away that judge's discretion is a key component of why we see some of the things, because even if the judge wanted to have some leniency on it, they cannot because of these guidelines that's restricting them from doing so. So I think that that's one of the biggest challenges that we face is because when they, you know, took on these particular pieces of legislation it took away um, the 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 ability the inability for them to get lower sentences. It took away the good behavior work credits. It took away all of that because they had to in turn do the longer and harsher sentences. So I think that that's a key component. Is that when we look at you know why the system the system is doing exactly what it was created to do, and that's to incarcerate and to keep people incarcerated. And because we're the, we the people have somehow, we were not in the loop, we did not know, uh, we were not informed, we, most of us did not care. And in doing so, we are keeping the same people in these so-called seats um, who are not, because a lot of these judges are appointed, you know, not in a sense elected, and all this kind of is all intertwined. And I think that we're going to continue to see more of that until we start to really say we the people hold the voice. We the people need to understand who we have, who we are electing and who we are fail failing to move out of these seats to get things done. I'm sorry for being so long winded, but that's that's pretty much it. <laughs> no, you're good. Tammy, um, did you were you going to? Yeah, I'd like to jump in there and, and point out something that your question struck me funny, but part of your question talked about violent offenders. And I just want to point out one more time to, I know I'm preaching to the choir here, but that, that, that is a, in my opinion, a very um, obvious ploy that politicians have deemed up to make things seem different than they may actually be by labeling a lot of people, violent offenders um, when their crime may or may not have even been classified as a victim's crime. You know, it could be a property crime and be a violent offense. So I think that is really important to look at um, because a lot of those people are sentenced under laws for violent offenders um, will never get a chance at parole ever. And so I think that's something that's really important that we address um, very very much forcefully. Um, and the other thing is, you know, when you talk about second chances, how many of us, if we walked around with a ball and shackle around us, as so many people do who are paroled or who have served their sentence, but yet still carry that with them everywhere they go for them from their job to their housing to whatever they do. There's never a release of that burden that they carry. And so there we might want to call it a second chance when they walk out of a gate. But if they're living under supervision and they're under parole or even if they are not and they've served their time, their time is never ending. And that has got to be addressed, too. Yeah, and, and, and I think that, you know, let's just call a spade a spade. You know, I'm not here trying to be all super politically correct, right? We want to be heard, but, you know, you have tons of people in the system who are wrongfully convicted. And wrongfully convicted is usually wrongfully convicted of a violent crime. So are you telling me that there's, especially in the state of South Carolina, there's no one who's checking for the wrongfully convicted because I can't even tell you five people who have been released. I have 
tons of people sitting here who have loved ones who are incarcerated wrongfully, wrongfully convicted of murder, wrongfully convicted of a ton of things. We have someone in the chat talking about her daughter wasn't even there. The boyfriend was sending texts and she is wrongfully convicted of a murder she wasn't even privy to. And so I think that what has got to happen is we have got to bring attention to the fact that we can song and dance around it all day. And I, you know, I want legislators to know the real nitty gritty. Y'all are tearing apart families and homes to keep the money flowing through the, the, the piggy bank of mass incarceration. And at the end of the day, if you have a large population of people who you won't even be able, they're not even eligible to go up for a re-review because they can't find any loopholes in their case. There was nothing done incorrectly or heaven forbid, they can't read or write or they can't ask for help. They don't know where to go and where to start. They're stuck. Then you got people who are in serving 25 years plus for a violent offense of what? Driving while intoxicated in the state of South Carolina is a violent offense. That's ridiculous. How many times have you ever gotten into a car and drove after you've been at Applebee's or a Cheesecake Factory or wherever you want to be, and you have one too many drinks at the margarita night with your homegirls, and now you're driving drunk, but nobody pulls you over, so you're not getting a DWI. And so what I'm saying is that there has to be a better way than just running people back into court. And the way that I see that we could find this system to be progressive is that, A, one, we set up an opportunity for people to earn good time regardless of their crime so that a person really and truly has a paper trail to say, hi, Ali Minigakis has been arrested and she has 35 years and somewhere around her second or third year, she decided that she had to change who she was. If she, from that day forward, walked the path of redemption. She taught other people and she led other people to righteousness. It will also show that there has to be a way for people who are wrongfully convicted if people are not willing to sit up and listen to their stories. And you mean to tell me of all the racial disparities happen across the United States, especially in the state of South Carolina, there's no one in prison wrongfully convicted. And then you have legislators who capitalize off of incarceration, but they don't want to put legislation through that might change the laws because that will let some folks free and they can't charge them $20,000, $40,000 for parole hearings or what have you. And so all I'm saying is that there has to be a way. Um, I know that the Department of Corrections, even if a person is not eligible for good time, they still calculate it. They still calculated some of it. And if a person is actually able to say, hey, well, I've taken X, Y, and Z class, sure, they should be able to earn credit for that as well. But we have to have a way where people can be released from the system without being stuck in the system for, you know, I'm not trying to make light of crime at all, but I am not the same person at 40 as I was at 18. I've done a lot of crazy things in between 18 and 40, and I walk a completely different path. But there has got to be a way that we can come together in complete understanding and know that people are not always going to be the same person. And studies show, and there are states, even Mississippi has decided to do away with some of their things and allow violent offenders the opportunity at parole. There has got to be a way. But you know what? People are so traumatized by the crime that they see on the street. What just happened on the news? Oh, you heard a 14-year-old boy uh, shot a police officer. Every that makes That's like a fresh wound we keep just stabbing over and over and over again. Well, really, instead of now we're looking at COVID, and people are two and three years behind as far as court dates are concerned, instead of canceling out those people who are out in the street still running wild, why don't we pull from the back end of people who have been incarcerated 15, 10, 15 plus years, allow those people who have shown themselves release so that they can get back into the streets and help the communities that they come from and now they understand the damages and the hurt that they've caused as opposed to waiting until they're 80 years old before we're like, oh, we're gonna let you go free. You free, but now you don't even know where to go and you got nobody. Come on, Harpo, what is that? That doesn't work for me. Can I say something? Yeah, go ahead. 
Um, <clears throat> a lot of, I mean, fear, I noticed that that's a lot of what is being used um, around election time. You have to keep in mind that people don't want to see soft on crime. Um, and so fear, um, statistics show that people who have even committed crimes, even as murder in the second degree, less than 5% ever reoffend nationally. So we have to look at it from the other perspective. Well, if we know all of this. We have Pew Charities here specifically in South Carolina to do two rounds. And everything that we're saying is not just we're saying this because we're passionate about it. You cannot argue with facts. Um, when you look at violent offenders are typically not repeat offenders, right? Nonviolent offenders are typically repeat offenders because they're not getting these longer, harsher sentences. So everything in a sense is all intertwined and it's all a correlation between as to why a lot of people are moving in the way in which they do. More than 69% of those who are incarcerated in SEDC are committed for violent offenses. They are violent offenders, as they would say, right? And the first thing that they want to say is that, oh, we cannot allow, you know, violent offenders because most of them, 95% of all Americans, 95% of people have taken a plea. So if we look at it from an objective standpoint, you know that 95% of the people who are incarcerated have taken pleas, right? We know that within SEDC, South Carolina, we have more than 69% of the people incarcerated are for violent crimes. So what does that tell you? That, that, that says a lot as to why they pinpoint, I don't know if you guys see it constantly on the news when it's election time, that there's always something to get people to fear letting people who have committed these so-called violent offenders out. Okay, when you look at Mississippi, South Carolina, as far as when you talk about disparities, we we're ranked like fourth. When you look at states like Mississippi, Mississippi was like ranked second or third between Mississippi and Louisiana. We never heard that governor come on and say, oh, my God, we made a horrible choice. We made a horrible decision saying that we should allow our violent offenders on to serve 50 percent of the time. They are very much aware of knowing that if they let these so-called violent offenders, and again, I know that there's going to be people who want it, and there's going to be some people just want to stay in prison. I mean, we all can be optimistic, but let's be honest, not everybody want to do the right thing. But those that do, they know that they're not going to go back to prison. So we have to look at, one, A, what is it What is it they're getting from a keeping when more than 69% of the people who are incarcerated have violent crimes? More than 11,000, almost 12,000 of those who are incarcerated are one of these longer, harsher sentences, which is the truth in sentencing. That tells you a lot. And we know that, that they get federal money because they house people who they're getting both state and federal money for housing these people. So you have to look at that from all, all I guess, all perspective as to why is it so difficult? Why is it that they are so and, and less um, likely to let people out who have committed such crimes? Again, people are not their crimes, especially when you know that people have aged out of crime. We know that each crime is situational, that drugs and or alcohol contributed into whatever happened for them to go to prison. All those things were there. We know that not everybody has a family um, to support them. A lot of them don't have the educational background. I think the average in SEDC, I think there's almost 10,000 people without even a high school diploma or GED. So again, there's a lot of things that is to correlation as to why things are the way they are. And it's not making an excuse, but it gives you a better understanding as to why we're not progressing as a state as we should when you look at the statistics compared to other states. So I'm sorry. Um, it, it, it's just, it's a lot. And I think that we have to be um, realistic and holistic incarceration does impact people mentally, physically, financially, spiritually, not only those who are incarcerated, but their families as well. We as a community, we suffer because you go from having two people in a home to now having one. You know, it's a lot of families that struggle with incarceration as well. And that's the missing piece that uh, a lot of people don't understand when they talk about incarceration. They forget how it impacts the community, how it impacts families how we have to prepare those once they become back into society, whether whatever they've done, violent or nonviolent, we have to prepare our communities to accept them. Because again, if you constantly see fear, 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 oh, this person just killed five people. When we know that the levels of incarceration continue to decrease, right? But the levels of incarceration, as far as us letting people out, we're not doing. So that's all a part of the tactic, in my opinion, you know, as to they're not letting people out. The crime rates are not what they once was. We talk about recidivism, but how many honestly are those who have been there 20, 10, 15 years 
most likely they're nonviolent offenders. They get out and their statistics say that they are repeat offenders and they're going to go right back. The people that have been there the longest, they know that they're not going to come back. Like I said, nationally, less than 2% who have even committed crimes such as murder ever reoffend. And that's well, the big exactly. thing why they moved away from some of the things as far as like furlough. You know, they use that as a fear tactic because someone got out in a whole nother state and killed somebody. And I'm not making light of the situation, you know, in any way or any regards saying that people should not have, um, you know, somewhat. But to the level of fear that they try to perpetuate. Again, we look at these men and women daily. They outnumber the staff. These are not the people in which we hear about. These men and women are proactively doing the right thing every day. And we don't hear all these horror stories. So we have to help shed light on that these men and women contribute daily. They cognitively have changed. A lot of them have changed. And again, you got some that hasn't. But for the most part, a lot of these men and women daily do the right thing, irregardless of what led them to prison. And that's something that everybody deserves to know. Thank you. And when you think about it, it defies logic. I mean, just to tag on to, you know, this this line of conversation here, it defies. Where is the incentive if you are arrested, incarcerated? Where Where is the incentive to change and rehabilitate if you're serving a de facto life sentence? We have individuals who are incarcerated currently who were sentenced to life with the possibility of parole after 30 years or life with the possibility of parole. But if you're not paroling anyone, where, where is the incentive to, to rehabilitate? Because your life with a possibility of parole is de facto life sentence. And if you're wheeling somebody out whose health is declined at 85 years old, that is technically a life sentence. So you're taking away an individual's incentive to even change. Yeah. Right. Well, South Carolina likes to tout that low recidivism rate. But when you let hardly anyone out, you don't have to worry about anybody reoffending because none of them are getting out. That's just another tactic that they use that is very misleading. Yeah, and I think... You know, that's why it's important that we're having these conversations and we are building a firm foundation and educating one another about what we know um, as people closest to the problem, whether it's a family member or whether you are an attorney who's seen on the front side. Um, There are a lot of different components that kind of go into this. And the biggest thing comes back to money right? A lot of it comes back to all the resources that flow in through the incarceration numbers. Um, But when we look at um, old law versus new law, people who were eligible at, you know, before the 1994-1995 crime bill and the truth and sentencing bills, people were eligible for these same crimes, are eligible for early, uh, for parole and early release. And so the problem that you know, we face is that they, they've, as Erica said, they feared us into feeling as though people are not deserving of a second chance when, hell, they're giving people a second chance every day, all day, it depends on who their lawyer is, depends on how the parole board is feeling when they rolled in. Oh, I had a good drive into work today. I'm going to let some folks free. You know, we know that only 8% of people in the state of South Carolina are actually being paroled, and there is no criteria. There's no rhyme or reason. Nobody's holding them accountable and nobody is putting forth any policy to change the actual factuals on how you decide if a person deserves freedom or not. And so the frustrating part is that it's going to take a lot of community education and a lot of effort on all of our parts together and combined in order for us to kind of bring forward the truth about what's really happening. if we could get some of these people out of the system who have been serving these long sentences to be a help to what's going on in the system, you know, we will have some recourse. And then a lot of times they always bring up, well, what about the victim? What about what about the, the families of the people who were um, hurt by those who, who actually committed the violent crimes? 
there are so many studies that show that, um, you know, uh, not allowing a person, there's no, there's no therapy for the victim's family. It's like you, you send them into prison, they have some say so on the front side. All they know is their, their world is completely turned upside down and they're traumatized. They never hear about the path or the, the walk that the person who has committed the crime against them or their loved one has taken throughout their stages. And then they're only reminded of it every single time a person is moved or when they're eligible for release. And that will re-traumatize me every time because I'm thinking the big bad wolf is around the corner if that's the case of what particularly happened to me, right? However, there are so many studies on restorative justice that say people wanna heal from their pain. They want to be able to move forward and I am not able to move forward by seeing the person who caused or um, inflicted pain upon me or my family serve a life sentence. I need to talk to that person and understand why I need to get down to the root of, you know, what what's going on inside of me so that I can live a full life because I am a victim of something. And I think that when we really take a look at it, it's closure. And while we're accepting all these monies for these uh, people who are incarcerated and whether a person has restitution or not, that doesn't pay for somebody's life. That You know, all this money that's being collected, we should be offering services to victims. But there are so many people just collecting data and they're keeping track of who's doing what and how it's going. They're not providing any services. Collecting data is not criminal justice reform. Collecting data just provides you with information to allow you to have grant funding from the United States federal government, okay? So when we get finished, let's start working on people, the hearts and minds of people. Let's start healing our communities and start reinfecting them with cancer when we send an abused child into prison for uh, killing their abuser. We never do anything along the way or very few things because they're a violent offender because violent offenders are afforded very little rehabilitative efforts. There are oftentimes when I listen to um, other people who are incarcerated that say that the CEOs told them there's no rehabilitation in here. If you want it, you better seek it for yourself. So I think that once we start looking at it from that perspective, we can move forward. Go ahead, Ali. Yeah, I... I couldn't agree with you more, Lulu, and, and the rest of you ladies. Um, I also, speaking of victims, want to talk about the violent crimes that are victimless. Um, I mean, if we, you know, where's the, the list of violent crimes and who creates them? Legislators create them, right? Um, so the, the section of the code of laws for South Carolina is title 16160, 16160. That details what all the violent crimes are. There's things that you would expect, right? Murder, attempted murder, murder, violent burglaries, things. But other ones that are in there include drug trafficking. And, you know, when people that aren't involved in this system and this work here, drug trafficking, what do they think? Oh, they think like crazy amounts, boatloads of cocaine. Um, that's not the case. I actually, my, my mother, I'm at my family's house right now, bringing some Splenda packets because I love doing this visual. So, under 40, section 4453375C, um, that's one of the violent crimes. It's trafficking cocaine. So what is trafficking cocaine? Trafficking cocaine is really possessing 10 or more grams of cocaine. That is a violent crime. If you do that your first time, you must be sentenced to three years. Again, no possibility of early release or probation. If you do it another time, that's mandatory five years. If you do it a third time, that is a mandatory 25 years in prison. And a Splenda packet is one gram of cocaine. So 10 Splenda packets, this is how much drug trafficking is, okay? And so if someone has this much cocaine in their car or in their home, that's considered drug trafficking and they can be spending potentially a mandatory 25 years in prison. There is no victim to drug trafficking. Okay, I, I, I know the, the counter argument to that. Oh, you know, it's a violent profession. Sure. Okay. But you're not going to be able to um, come to terms with any specific person or human with drug trafficking. There's so many people um, due to the tough on, on crime and the drug war um, that are in South Carolina, SCDC, and uh, federal and 
prisons all around the country and jails that are in there for drug offenses. Um, that is taking up a lot of our resources and money, whether you care about people that are incarcerated or not. It's a huge fiscal burden on taxpayers um, for this much amount of cocaine. So let's just also consider, you know, reforming what is a violent crime and what isn't. Yeah, and, and I agree to that. I, I also know, you know, we have some very near and dear loved ones who have um, no victim and they have natural life sentences and there's no drugs involved. And so I think that, you know, the drugs, I think when we look at tough on crime and, and that whole component of things, we have to look at the mindset of the people who set those laws in place back in the day. They were angry with black folks. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't about, it wasn't about, um, what is about now, because now how we're getting to this place of everyone's fighting for these, um, removing the mandatory minimums for the drug offenses and things like that, that's great. I think it's a step in the right direction, right? However, I think personally, the reason why that's happening is because when I drive outside of my house and I drive down the street, every single person I see begging on the corner and on the street, they don't look like me anymore. They're not asking me for a five and ten dollars or if I can just get something to eat or, you know, um, walking in the grocery store. Ma'am, I don't want to steal, but I have a sandwich and an apple. Can you just pay for this up at the front? The reason why is because the demographic of people who are addicted to drugs, who are being heavily incarcerated in prisons for drugs, they don't look like the people who they were initially looking to put in prison. And so now you see this great push and I'm not trying to make light of it. You know what I'm saying, Ali? Like I, I get it. There is a need for change all across the board, but I can't help but think about the fact of what I'm actually seeing. Who is addicted to opioids? I don't know anybody that's personally addicted to opioids. You know what I'm saying? But when I drive down the street, I can see who's addicted to opioids. But when it was crack, it was a different thing. We wanted to get those evil villains off the street. And we just got to call a spade a spade. Like we have been moving in the realm of some serious racial disparity and or socioeconomic disparity because all, you know, everybody is not fed with the silver spoon. I get it. But let's not act like, um, and this is not towards you, this is towards legislators and people who are in positions of power. Now you're getting ready to do away with the drug crimes because you don't want your auntie, you don't want your brother, you don't want your husband, you don't want your godfather going to prison with those freaking criminals, right? So all I'm saying is give people an opportunity to show themselves. Um, there's enough, there is quite enough um, wrong in the system that we can actually point to it. We can touch it on a couple legislators. I can just hold out my hand like, hey, give me five dollars to hold your secrets. So I just want to say that it's important that we look at people from a whole, because if I really did have Santa Claus bags full of drugs, I might have killed a few people. I just wasn't there when they died. You know, and so, you know, if you're really talking about a real life kingpin, you want to talk about Frank Lucas or, you know, whatever, who's running the whole city, that's different, right? But like you said, those 10 splendor bags are people who are getting long-term sentences, but they don't look like everybody else anymore. And the problem is that I know a lot of people who were never on drugs and now they are addicted to as many drugs as they can get on or K2 that they can smoke inside of the prison walls. And that's because there's a lack of security and safety for people who are incarcerated and for people who work there. And that is not a lie. And I think, you know, we have to reimagine the criminal justice system. We've often heard that phrase with policing. So just like with reimagining policing, we need to reimagine the criminal justice system and when you saw these different states who were dealing with opioid addiction, what did they do? They set up programs to help individuals who are addicted to opioids. Um, they are doing everything they can to help them, you know, through this problem. And that that's what that's the direction that we need to be moving in is the the direction of justice and fundamental fairness. If you have a drug addiction, should it be criminalized? Do you get locked up when you're sick? 
you know, and, and I think moving in the direction of actually treating the problem, treating the addiction rather than criminalizing it and incarcerating an individual is the direction that we need to move in. And so, Lulu, you had talked earlier about wrongful convictions. I'm a huge, huge fan of conviction integrity units within prosecutor's office. There's a case in the headlines right now, the individual was sentenced to over 100 years in prison and the prosecutor was the one who asked for a reduction in sentence. So that's different from a conviction integrity unit, but it shows a prosecutor's willingness to step outside of the box and just do what's right, you know, you and get a reasonable sentence for this individual. But do you think that that prosecutor, um, I mean, that was all, I felt like that was forced though, right? I felt like if those truckers didn't you decide, know, they I, weren't I, delivering I, anything I, to Colorado. I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt. I mean, they did it. You know, they could have resisted. I mean, I, I have not, I have not routinely seen that in the state of South Carolina. I yeah. have not seen conviction integrity units within the state, state of South Carolina that are popping up in different prosecutors' offices throughout the country. But I think it's all a part of reimagining the criminal justice system and yeah. not be on a fast track to prosecute and incarcerate. But we should be on the fast track to seek what is fair and just for the individual, for society, and for the victims. I think, too, holding these, um, our politicians and our prosecutors and all of the different levels of the criminal justice system, to hold them accountable and to call them on things when they say things that are not politically true or that are politically driven, and to remind them, you know, you you were still in um, you were in the legislature when you passed these laws a generation ago. 1995 was a whole generation ago. We're coming up on 30 years of that, you know, and to remind them you were part of this problem. Be part of the solution. If you're a career politician, it's time for you to redress your wrongs. And to take care of those things. Mm -hmm. And if you've inherited that problem from somebody else, then you have a moral obligation to fix it when you are confronted with evil. And I think we've got to make sure that as we do these things, we talk to them about that. And it, it's hard and it's um, intimidating and there's such a stigma for the families already. But I think that is so important as we educate people that we know and people that are in our communities and to sit down with the legislators and say, oh, I understand that, but you were wrong and you need to fix it. I mean, this is on you. This is what a leader is supposed to do. Just like with the conviction integrity units you're talking about, that is a wonderful thing. And so as we see those things, I think that's an important thing to keep pushing them and to say, I can help you. I can speak on your behalf about what a violent criminal looks like and how often it's 10 packets of Splenda or a burglary where no one was present. You know, those are things that we can do. And I think we have to do and to help hold people accountable. People hold us accountable every day, every day in multiple ways. Can I say something? Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> Uh, one of the biggest challenges also, how many of our legislators are playing both sides? How many of them are actually um, prosecutors or former judges? Um, some of them, if you look at some of the committees, it's just amazing to me how they are in or on some of these committees without having a bias or having um, a conflict of interest. You, you get what I'm saying? Um, some of them are ex-police officers. Some of them, I mean, some of the backgrounds in regards to the playing both sides, so to speak. I mean, some of them are attorneys. Um, and so it begins to play in my mind as to which side are they playing on today in that sense. I've seen people say one thing and then turn around and, and we, we have legislation and then they turn around and they are uh, 
defending the same people that they're saying that they don't believe deserve these type of incentives that they earned. So I'm saying that a lot of these committees, I think that there should be um, some type of committee or before they are appointing certain people on reform committees, that they should look at how many of these people were ex-judges, how many has these biases. I'm just saying it, it just blows my mind when you look at how so many of these legislators are attorneys, prosecutors, former, you know, former prosecutors, um, defense attorneys. So again, it, it seems like it would be a conflict of an interest on some on some levels. And I've seen that personally when we spearhead certain pieces of legislation where they're playing both sides. So to me, that kind of is an integrity type thing. And then we as a people, we're not, we're failing to show up to vote. We're failing to, you say, hold them accountable, but we're not. We have some of these same legislators who are doing the will of what they choose to do. Again, they're de they're deciding who they want to be forgiven to and who they don't want to be. I've seen plenty of people who are legislators, and you guys have seen the news, I'm probably sure, you know, where some of the officers are beating their wives. They are criminal domestic violence. Nikki Haley was the first person to come out with the Charleston shooting that said we need to be forgiven in our state as a whole. You know, but then <laughs> they're not forgiven enough to pass legislation. So, again, we have a lot of biases and people who are playing both sides, just depending on who it is, who they want to forgive and who they choose not to forgive. So I think we have to um, be more accountable as to vocal as to these various committees that they're being selected to and being appointed to who are on these actual committees. Who are these and where are their backgrounds as to how can we ensure that they're walking in integrity and they're not making private deals or they're not making having private conversations that we're not privileged to sit down at the table and are aware of. I'm just thinking that, that a lot of that is happening. Um, like I said, playing both sides, playing the families, ensuring that they're getting money, but then they don't believe that legislation could come into play where it removes those longer and harsher sentences because they're benefiting off of it. Mm -hmm. Can I also jump in there? I, even if there is no foul play, which I'm sure there is, the the problem is is that crime and people that are victims, at least of the criminal justice system, I'm talking about people that are incarcerated and the families of those, those are the minority. It's still the minority of the population. So crime doesn't get votes. That's the problem with politics is people want the legislators want to get reelected. And if they come and they speak up for um, violent offenders, what's going to happen to the majority of their base? They're going to come down hard on them. So what we need is more conversations like this, like Lulu's doing and Timmy are doing um, and bringing those voices of the incarcerated and those of you guys and, and women that are in custody um, that are struggling to get to, um, parole hearings, that are struggling to get back after um, spending decades sometimes um, and readdressing if they had wrongs even to come up and um, teach these people that are not in the minority, that have not been affected by the system, that those that are in the system are human and that they deserve the same um, chances as everyone else and educate them and go towards their empathy. And I think that's where, you know, that first question is their hope for the system. I believe, I do believe that there's hope for humanity. I think that people are ignorant and people don't know about these things. And I think that people are afraid to learn about it and go about their everyday lives without having to worry about the guy that's going up for parole next week for the fifth time. Um, but we, it's our duty, those that have been affected, those that are um, re-entering to society, not to continue on into your lives um, and, and, and function in your world, but also to educate those that aren't um, privy to this, this experience to tell them what's going on in our state, in our prisons, um, and the inhumanity that's happening so that we can get more voters that may not have been personally affected um, to empathize with those that are. Most definitely. McKinney, did you have anything you wanted to add? Um, this was a, a wonderful conversation with all of you. So I do want to thank you all for coming out tonight and expressing uh, how you feel about second chances. Um, Lulu, do you have anything else that you want to add? Yeah, I just want to, you know, again, thank you also because 
as advocates and people working together um, for change in the state of South Carolina, um, you know, I admire each and every one of you for the work that's being done on your parts. You know, Allie on the front end, you know, you're pushing for those PD trials and, and, and we got to have you back on to talk about that. Um, and then, you know, Alicia and all the work that you're doing and working to help people get um, early release through parole um, and, and some of the things that you're empowered in your mind and purposeful to do. And then the work that Tammy and I do and also Erica, you know, it's just a pleasure to be amongst a group of people who understand it they get it and they see the need for change and they're not afraid to speak about the changes that are necessary in order for us to move forward and be productive in society um, and as a community. Um, you know, we may not all love and like one another, but I think we do have a better opportunity or a better chance if we can look and give people the grace that we want to receive for ourselves each day. And so with that, I thank you all. We're at time. Um, I thank you all for being with us today. And if you can just hang around as we end. But thank you all to all of our listeners. We're glad that you were with us today. It was amazing. Um, and we look forward to next time. This has been another episode of Second Chances.